pray and we'll start Sunday school. Well, Father, we, we pray that you bring the, uh, bring the people in, Lord, that we could fellowship together around your word, protect them on the roads. Pray that we would be blessed by the opening of your Bible, Lord, that your church would be built up, that we would be just a little more assured of the things that we believe by studying your word today. We pray that you'll give me grace and give grace to the hearers. Pray these blessings on on both services today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you'll open your Bibles to 2 Luke, also known as the book of Acts. We're in chapter 6, Acts chapter 6. We... I had to go back and look at the streams last night and see. We, we started at the end of January, so we're nine months in. We're in chapter six. I gave the title for the live stream. The title for the message today is called Organized Religion. I'm sure some of you guys have heard people say things like, make claims that they're, that they're a Christian, that they're spiritual, that they love Jesus. But they'll qualify it by saying, but they don't like organized religion. Right? I'm sure some of you guys have somewhere heard claims like that. But the obvious problem with claims like that is that if you do, in fact, love Jesus, if you are, in fact, a Christian, then you will base that belief and that Christianity on the word of God, which the word of God actually presents a very organized religion, as we'll see today. Um, and so that, that's kind of a contradiction to say you're a Christian or to say that you're a follower of Jesus, but that you don't like organized religion. Because, and, and what people usually mean by that is they mean they don't like church or they don't like the, the church. So um, I begin like this because what we have in our text today in Acts chapter 6, as I'm sure some of you are at least familiar with, we have a problem that's going to arise in the church This early church is going to have a problem that gets addressed by the apostles, and that's what's going to drive the progress, drive the organization of this very early church. And we're definitely at the very beginning stages of the organization of the church. Acts chapter 6, we're still in the very, there's not any real distinctive uh, time markers to go by, but we're probably still within the first year or two of the resurrection, so we're still very very early on in the church growth, in the church development. Um, Even though we're at the very beginning, we do already have some senses of organization. We already have the leadership of the church. We have the apostles. They're the the defined leaders. They are the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. They're the witnesses of his teaching. And so we have the authority structure already with the apostles, and and that's where it starts Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 mentions how the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. That's that's the foundation, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So we have the foundation laid. And what we're going to see in Acts chapter 6 today is another office begin to develop, another office of the church. It's an office that we call the diaconate or uh, the deacon. 
the offices for the deacon. This, this word we use, deacon, comes from the Greek word diakonos, uh, which just simply means servant. Diakonos means servant, and that word, interestingly enough, is found in verses 1, 2, and 4 of our text today. So, although the, the office of deacon isn't explicitly mentioned or, or given that title for these men that get chosen, the word group is all throughout our text here. And, and the function of the deacon is, is clearly... Uh, laid out for us. So we're definitely in the early stages and formation of this office we call the deacon. Now, as we see the organization of, the, of this new covenant church develop throughout the book of Acts, we see it develop more thoroughly throughout the epistles, maybe especially Paul's epistles. This shouldn't seem a strange thing that the church of God is an organized religion, that it becomes an organized thing because Yahweh has always desired, he's always utilized a very organized religion. Uh, if, you, if you question that, just read the book of Leviticus. Um, it's, Tafik mentioned last week the regulative principle of worship. Um, surely that is, I, I think you could say, an obviously biblical principle to follow is that God defines his worship. We've seen that since the beginning of our Bibles. Uh, really, God's meticulously dictated his worship. Uh, in the Old Testament, he would, he would fulfill and define who would f- uh, fulfill these different offices under the Old Covenant. He would define how to worship, where to worship, how to sacrifice, so on, so on, so on. So my surprise is not that the church becomes organized, The thing that kind of surprises me, and it surprises me about a lot of things throughout the book of Acts, is how long it takes, how how slow the process is for this to actually take place. That's that's an interesting aspect to me as as we go through the book of Acts. But as with everything else, God has his reasonings for why he he does these things. It's just, you know, you wonder about some things. I'm like, as I read through the development of the church it becomes clear to me that Jesus didn't really define or lay out the, the structure for the apostles, right? Like, okay, this is what the church is going to be. You're going to have elders, this is the deacons. I mean, it doesn't seem like all those things were laid out. God apparently let this kind of organically develop uh, with the apostles working these things out as the church uh, goes through issues. Uh, that seems to be driving this this development for this office here. So I think that's definitely an aspect of discontinuity between the Old Covenant and New Covenant. God spoke from heaven to Moses and articulately defined all these aspects where in the New Covenant, for whatever reason, this kind of developed. And uh, that's, how, that's how it develops. It's, it's, it's kind of distinct in that way. Um, And since I still have another page of introduction here, and I'm kind of competing, I guess, with MacArthur on introduction length, let me mention one more thing before we actually get to verse 1. This is interesting to know. You talk about an organized religion. You talk about the the development of the church structure. It's interesting to note why a lot of New Testament-like critical scholars reject 
some of the New Testament books. Uh, some of you guys have heard the name uh, Frederick Schleiermacher, which is a bad word, right? He's one of those early, like early 1800s, beginning of liberalism and this critical scholarship. And from him, you have guys today like Bart Ehrman who reject some of the New Testament books as, as being forgeries, as not being legitimate. Does anybody know the reason? Like maybe take Bart, Bart Ehrman, for instance. He's, he's a good example. Like what? What is the issue that he, that he says that he finds with some of the New Testament books for him to reject them and say those can't be Pauline or those have to be late second century forgeries? There's, there's a couple issues that they find with the books. You know, any off the top of your head, maybe what? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it will be like the uh, specific word usage, like, oh, the, in some of these books, those words are not found anywhere else, so they're, that's a different person who wrote it. That's a pretty, yeah. But the other, the, the other big thing is the uh, organization of the church. Like, so they all reject the, the pastoral epistles. They say there's no way those are first century, that the church was in, in no sense developed like that within the first. Cause so their high-level view of... The New Testament church was that it was just this mishmash of differing groups and who all thought they, you know, were rightly interpreting Jesus' teachings. And it was just this battle for truth. And it just so happens that the group that won is who we call Orthodox. Right. But it was just that there, there was no way there was this organization, this universal structure for the church in the first century. So you, all these books, you know, Paul's epistles that seem to say those things, they're like, there's no way that was first century because it was just a mishmash of the ghost of Schleiermacher haunts us today. Okay, hopefully it's working. The power's back on. Okay, so so that to me that's interesting to point is that even these critical scholars kind of stumble over the reality of how organized the early church actually became and how quickly that happened. So let's dive into our text now. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Here we're going to see this problem that arises in God's providence that leads to the development of this early proto-diaconate office. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, the daily distribution that that word there for distribution could be translated service. It is a form of this word that we use for for diaconate. It's diakonia. And that's the first occurrence in our text of that word group. Now, this is the problem. And the text begins for us in verse 1. It says, now in these days, now in these days, like I said, in these days, we're in the first couple years since Christ has ascended. We're very early on in church history. And what's going on in these very early days? It's said that the disciples were increasing in number. Now, why this growth? Why and how is the church growing? Well, I'd say the reason is everything that we've been studying since we've started 
the book of Acts. But I think a summary, if you want to turn maybe one page back, why is the church growing? The end of Acts chapter 5 has a little summary that I think explains it well, starting in verse 40. It says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, but then let them go. So my first point of why the church is growing is that the Christians are willing to suffer and to shed their blood for the name of Jesus. Second, in verse 42, it says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So the faithfulness, the continued preaching and teaching of Jesus, the willingness to suffer, this is why the church is growing in these early days. And that's something that I'm going to hit on a couple of times, this reality of the church growth, because church growth is great. Uh, church growth is a good thing. God promised that his church would grow. We pray that our church would grow, but as we see even here in the apostolic, spirit-filled church, with growth comes problems. With growth comes problems, but these are problems that we need to be willing to, to welcome and work through as the early church does, does here. So the second part of uh, back in verse 1 of Acts chapter 6, the specific problem, it says, there's a complaint by the Hellenists that arose against the widows because uh, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we have a conflict in the church, a conflict between a couple of groups in the church, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The Hellenists are simply Jews who speak Greek, Greek-speaking Jews, and the Hebrews are your classic. Aramaic-speaking, Hebrew-speaking Jews. And so, they're both Jews. So it's not so much a a racial issue, uh, because they're both Jewish, but uh, as the commentators try to guess, because it doesn't specifically tell us exactly what the root of the conflict is, uh, maybe there's some cultural issues uh, at play here between the Greek-speaking and the Arab. Maybe it's language barriers, between these two groups that's causing a a miscommunication that's resulting in some of these widows uh, being left out. But the text doesn't give us those details. You kind of got to guess. As I thought about it, I guess I'm not so inclined with the language barrier issue, being that Greek was the lingua franca of the time. Uh, All the New Testament books are written in Greek. Um, The... The Romans, you know, under Roman rule, there has to be that language, uh, shared language between the Romans and, and the Hebrews. So they have to be able to communicate. They would have been communicating in Greek. You see Jesus talking to Pilate. No pro- I mean, so I, my assumption is it's not a language issue. I think even the Hebrews knew Greek. Um, so I, I'm suspecting maybe a cultural, a cultural issue in the sense that um, what the reason you have all these Greek-speaking Hebrews in Jerusalem at the time is these would have been folks who were part of the diaspora, these, these, these scattered Israelites that got sent out amongst you know, Greek culture and Roman territories. 
and they return to Jerusalem, right? Because the Jew always wants to come home to Jerusalem. So they come home to Jerusalem, but they're, they're Greek-speaking, right? And so you can imagine, my assumption is that uh, the Hebrew Jews, the real Jews who never left, they maybe they look down upon these as like it's kind of a second-class Jew. You know, they, they're almost Samaritan-like in a sense. They've been um, defiled, and they're bringing with them all the Greek culture only, and I didn't know that, the, that, these, that these Hellenists, these Greek-speaking Jews, actually had their own, uh, which maybe speaks to possibly the language issue, that they had their own uh, synagogue. They didn't meet in the same synagogue as the, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, which was interesting. So it could have been the cultural divide there. They just kind of want to stick together, or it could have been a language issue. Uh, we, we don't know. It doesn't tell us, but... As we all know, uh, whatever it was, I mean, we'll, f- we'll find something to divide about, right? Um, we're good at figuring that out. But for whatever reason it was, these certain widows weren't getting their fair share of the daily distributions, which reminds us again, just like we saw in chapter 4, that from the very beginning, the church was actually financially supporting and taking care of, of people in the church, right? Remember, we saw them selling lands, bringing it to the apostles, whoever was in need. So from the very beginning, this was just part, this was the assumption, and especially widows, I mean, even under the Old Covenant, that was explicitly multiple times God was holding Israel accountable for not uh, taking care of the widows and orphans. So that's, that's a biblical command specifically for them in particular. Um, and, and speaking of that, as I just thought about how the church develops, not only does the office of the deacon develop and kind of begin here and then form into a... a a full-out office that gets mentioned by Paul um, multiple times, but also even the category of widow gets like meticulously defined by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So just thinking about organized religion, wow, it gets, I mean, very specific, uh, very detailed, even to, that's not even an office of the church, but the qualifications for a widow were, were very meticulous. So we see... Um, this wasn't this mishmash idea of just, you know, it does become very, very organized religion. Now, um, let me see. Yeah, I kind of just put another note as I thought about this is, you know, as the church develops, you get qualifications, you get certain protocols, um, things become much more structured. That's nothing to look frown upon or try to uh, kick back against. Uh, these are all things that we should welcome. And I think we should be thankful that God has defined these things. Because in one sense, it's better than us just trying to make it up. You know, we're trying to just freestyle everything is that God has actually told us uh, there's a lot that we do have to to work through. Scripture doesn't define everything, but the things that it does, we can say, thank you, Lord, for telling us what you want us to do in this instance. I mean, in that sense, it, it relieves a lot of the pressure um, from the leadership of the church. They just say, well, the Bible says this, and so that's, that's how we do it. Um, but the other side, you know, I think we could all say is that a lot of us like, you know, the small church feel and maybe a lot of that is because it doesn't necessitate so much maybe structure or organization. It seems much more laid back, and we kind of naturally, I myself, you know, like that, like that feel. 
But as the church grows, it's, it's a good thing that the organization develops because God is a God of order. Um, so in a sense, there is some blessings, some unique blessings for the small church that doesn't necessitate some of that uh, meticulous order and we can kind of enjoy a little more freedom. But as we grow, we just need to be ready to uh, put these things in order for the, for the good of everyone. So verse 2, let's, let's see how this order progresses. Uh, now the apostles are going to give the answer to the problem. The problem is some widows are being neglected. The answer to this problem, verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's interesting that here in the book of Acts, it's the only time that the apostles are, are called the twelve. Here, uh, for whatever reason, Luke mentions them and calls them the twelve. But what they do is they summon the full number of disciples. Now, that alone is no small task because we're already in the multiple thousands of Christians in Jerusalem at this time. So they summon what you might call the the first official church meeting. They get all the, the believers together. And notice the answer to their the answer that the apostles come up with to facilitate this problem is not that, okay, look, we've got this issue that we ourselves will take this responsibility upon us and we will make sure that all the widows get taken care of uh, fairly and evenly. No, the apostles are willing to, um, uh, what's, the, what's the word when you give some? Delegate. They're willing to delegate this responsibility to others uh, because the, the calling that the apostles had necessitates their full attention to be given to the Word of God. It necessitates that. So somebody else is going to have to take on this job of serving tables. Now, that's the second occurrence of this word group, serving. It's from that same word group that we get the word deacons. It's just the the verbal form there. Now, serving tables maybe can kind of give you the, bad, the wrong idea of what this responsibility was for these guys. Um, it wasn't simply uh, maybe like setting the tables, making sure that the salad forks are on the left sides of the plates or just laying out everything. This task here that's, that's referred to as serve, serving tables is ensuring that the church funds, that the finances, you could say, that the food is being dealt uh, fairly and, and righteously uh, amongst those who are in need. I think that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when you read through the qualifications of a deacon, it says that he can't be um, greedy for money. That's one of the qualifications, is that he can't be a greedy for gain, I think is the language. So this was a matter of finances. This was a matter of... of uh, delegating, I mean, even food at that time was almost like a uh, currency in a sense, like it was worth something. This was the daily distribution. So this was having to go on daily. Uh, Food, you know, they didn't have the preservatives and things of that nature. This was an ongoing task of making sure people were fed in the church. So this is no small calling. This is no mediocre task, as I think maybe that language of serving tables hits our ears like it's, like it's a menial task. It's not. And if you look at the next verse, verse 3, I think it reinforces the reality of this high calling for these duties if you look at the qualifications here for those who are going to be picked. 
Verse 3 says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And so what are the... uh, what are the three qualifications that we see there for this, this, early, this early office? I said three. You might even say four. Some people say two. I was getting kind of picky, I guess, but... Man, man that was my number one. Nobody really pointed that out. Everybody said two, but I said, well, I mean, it says pick out from, from you men, so that's one. The other ones are a little more obvious, I guess. What are the good repute? Full of the spirit and of wisdom, which so a lot of most of the commentary said two qualifications here. So they're saying good repute and then but they're saying they're putting full of wisdom or full of the spirit and wisdom as another one as they go together. Right. And maybe I didn't I didn't take the time, but maybe there's a grammatical argument for why those are referring to the same thing, but I even said maybe you could divide those into two different things. So, so pick for you out some men. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Every, going back from the beginning of the Bible, I would say every single office, every single leadership role of the church has always necessitated and had the requirement to be designated for men only. Um, how this is still debated these days is beyond me because it's literally without exception. Um, and I was thinking like, oh, that's my hobby horse. Like, but uh, if y'all heard the Bivocational Shepherd podcast, it's not wise to ramble on about things that isn't an issue in your church, right? Like you're arguing for people who, so I don't want to, I don't want to, but it is an issue, I guess, outside of our church, obviously, those, those kinds of questions are still, even in this very text, like I've come across people still trying to argue for for the other perspective there. But second, it says men of good repute. So there needs to be this consensus among the people that they're going to be serving, that these are godly, trustworthy men. That it just needs to be a given. You don't need to be second. You know, if people are serving you, if they have this role, this office, you don't want to be second guessing everything they do. It just needs to be understood by the, by the people that these are trustworthy men. There needs to be a freedom for them to serve being trusted like that. Thirdly, is full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And if, and if you want to just treat it as one, you can see the, what should be, I would say, the obvious correlation, that the presence of the Spirit of God in someone's life should bring about a wisdom with it. Um, I had to go to Galatians 5 and be like, is wisdom a fruit of the Spirit? And no, it wasn't one of the ones listed. But, I mean, when you read through the list, you can see how... Um, Wisdom is, could, I would say very well could be, uh, and here it is, associated with the presence of the Spirit. You need somebody who is wise, who can navigate problems. Um, so the problem here is these, this, this, uh, this problem between two different groups of, of widows. And you can imagine how tempers, uh, but from the widows themselves or people trying to defend the widows, right? That's a righteous, you can see how 
it would take somebody very wise, somebody full of the Spirit, to navigate these kinds of issues and make sure that everybody in the church is fairly taken care of and everybody is, is happy. So you can see why these are very fitting qualifications for this role. Now, what are the apostles going to do? If these guys are going to be set apart for this work of serving the tables and taking care of the widows, what will the apostles do? They say that they will devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now in verse 2, Luke simply quoted there the kind of focus of the apostles as being preaching the Word. Where here he kind of expands upon this, this Word duty to include prayer. And I think it's similar to the correlation between being full of the Spirit and having wisdom. The, uh, the man dedicated to the Word of God must likewise and should naturally be a man of prayer. Uh, the, the preaching man must be a prayerful man. If not, um, you know, because that's where the, the Spirit of the blessing, the, 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 the blessing of the Spirit comes from the prayers of the righteous man, right? Um, and so you have, if you have a preaching man that's not a praying man, you might be sacrificing a lot of the blessings that would, that, that would come with that preaching. You might be lacking the conviction to the hearers. You might be lacking the conversions, things of that nature. Um, God can still work without prayer. God can, I know some, you know, you have these guys who are great preachers and, and minister to you for years, so much truth, and you find out they were illegitimate, that they were in sin or something like that, right? And you know that guy wasn't a prayerful man if he's cheating on his wife as, as being this great preacher, and the Lord still used that. Uh, so I kind of thought, well then, so then why the need? I think maybe it might be for your own benefit, Right, because God's going to bless His Word maybe without the prayer, and you know you can get into all the God's providential working in all these different ways. But if not for anybody, it's for your good to be a man of prayer as you study the Word of God and as you entrust God to do the work as you preach. So, but nonetheless, there is that direct correlation that the preaching man must be, in a sense, by definition, a praying man. This is what the apostles were doing; they were praying. And they were teaching and preaching the word of God. Now, verse 5. What they said, this plan of the apostles, it pleased the whole gathering. Well, there's evidence of the spirit of God right in the early church because nothing ever pleases everybody. But here in this church, what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now, I kind of wanted to stop here because I had to go pull out my grudem. I had to go pull out my systematic theology because I started thinking about um, church government. I started thinking about the relationship between leadership in the church and the congregation. And you kind of see this, this interaction, this relationship here as, as these officers of the church are being defined. Uh, if, if you think back to Acts chapter 1, verse 15, remember when Judas was being replaced and these two men were put forth? It says that they were explicitly put forth by the congregation, by the church, by the Christians. They were, they were, they were put forth... Uh, by the uh, to the, given to the apostles as these candidates in Acts chapter 15 we're going to see kind of a similar thing you remember that's where 
the uh, Jerusalem Council takes place, and they're trying to find some men who can go back with Paul and Barnabas. Is it Barnabas or Silas? I think it was Barnabas at that time. Yeah, Barnabas. Um, So I'll just read this verse to hear the language. It says um, they were going to take the results. They were trying to find some people to take the, the, the findings of the church council basically to the Gentile churches and make this proclamation. It says it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So I just mentioned these examples is that you see this, the congregation involved in these uh, when you're trying to, to, to pick men out to represent you and to lead you. There is this involvement with, with the, the leadership in doing this. And I think I've, I've kind of always appreciated this caveat that I've heard made to what we rightly call elder-led congregations. Um, I like the caveat of elder-led with congregational involvement. Right, And when I kind of look at the Bible as a whole and the New Testament as a whole, you see what I would kind of like when we look at our government, we have a representative government. We're all involved in who becomes our representatives, who becomes our leaders. Right. But we establish them as leaders and then they lead. Right. They have that authority to make decisions for us. But we are involved in choosing them. And so in the same way, I, I think how that organically would kind of happen in our church is you have. Uh, the church involvement, you have people coming to Tafik, like, hey, Tafik, like, this brother, when is he going to be a deacon? He needs, you know, and then somebody else comes to him, hey, Tafik, like, yeah, man, this guy serves, like, this guy, you know what I mean? And so you have the church involved, and then you have the leadership installing, uh, because even in our text here, what was the, I just read some language here that kind of, like in verse 3, They said, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute for the Holy Spirit and of wisdom who we will appoint to this duty. So you still have the leadership taking the um, taking the lead and and being the authority to uh, anoint them in a sense. But the church is involved and the church is how this brother here is faithful. Like um, so that's that's how I guess you could say in a perfect world, those things might develop. But there's definitely congregational involvement in. And the reason I even say there's a caveat, because if you're familiar with the, the options, you could say, of church governments, there's, there's on one side elder-led, and then there's congregationalism, right? Where congregationalism might lead towards, like, voting on everything, right? Which, at that, the obvious problem to that means, okay, what do the leaders do? If everyone's making the decision, what do, what do you have leaders for, right? So it seems to me like, in, in almost all these instances, and there's a couple of exceptions that grew to names, but... Sometimes it just mentions the apostles uh, picking leaders without the congregational involvement. But even in those instances, you know, like Paul's establishing all these churches and he's appointing elders in every town. Paul doesn't know these churches. Paul doesn't know these people really, right? He's doing quick visits. He has to be taking in uh, input from the church on who's real, who's faithful, right? So my assumption is there's always that congregational involvement there even if it's not explicitly mentioned. Um, So who gets picked? Who gets picked? The second part of verse 5 here, and it says, they chose Stephen, they is the church, this group of disciples, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, 
Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, who is a proselyte of Antioch. Now, what's interesting about this list, and just kind of note this, is that even these, what I'm calling early deacons, even though they're, they're, they're picked out to serve tables and fulfill this duty and help out these widows, um, these guys are not limited to that work. If you think about Stephen, we got Stephen coming up. Stephen is going to have, by far, the most texts dedicated to his sermon slash speech to the Jewish leadership. He gets more texts devoted to him in his, in his sermon than any other apostle, than the sermons of Jesus. I mean, it's, uh, this guy has a special, special place in, in Luke's writing and even as the new testament as a whole he gets so much text devoted to what he has to say philip the next guy mentioned this guy is philip the evangelist philip uh, is going to go to samaria philip's going to convert the ethiopian eunuch after that he gets transported to another city and does all kinds of evangelism there so these deacons aren't limited to to this service not restricted to it um, if you look at like first Timothy three, for instance, you look at the requirements to be a pastor, you look at the requirements to be a deacon, the, the requirements are very, very similar, almost in every way. And maybe these two guys maybe exceptionally had, were apt to teach, right? So maybe they could do that as well. Um, it certainly doesn't necessitate that a deacon do any of this word ministry like this, but that they're definitely not restricted from it. I would say is maybe, uh, a point that we see kind of see here in the in the text. Now, verse 6. These guys, it says, are set before the apostles. And they prayed and they laid their hands on them. Now, this, this is kind of what I would call the official installment of these men to their office through the laying on of hands. Laying on of hands. Um, we haven't done a lot since I've been here, a lot of laying on of hands. But laying on of hands is, the more I looked at it, I'm like, wow, this is all over. This is just one of God's things. This is all over the Bible. It goes all the way back to the very first pages of the Bible where, and it's used in, in so many different ways. You had um, Israel or Jacob laying his hands on his sons to bless them. You have Moses passing on his uh, leadership and his, and his blessing to Joshua um, you have Jesus in, in all of his healing ministry. He would lay his hands and, and transfer that blessing to the people. Uh, what other laying on of hands can y'all think of? Think of any more examples? Sacrifices. The sacrifices, right? You laid your hand and transferred the guilt to this animal before he was sacrificed. And that, that example's all over the place. So... So the laying on the hands is, is used in a lot of different ways, but you know you see it transferring authority, you see it transferring blessing, even transferring guilt, but it's just this outward uh, display of those things. And so we see this happening as the apostles lay their hands on these men who were chosen. Um, and so now, with them being officially installed, now we're at the church, early church, we kind of have, we're at two offices. We're at the office of apostle, and I would say, even though the name hasn't been given, there's definitely this 
office, uh, these proto-deacons, right? Two offices in the church, apostle and deacon. And I see, I think the obvious uh, way this kind of develops out is that that word ministry of the apostles transfers to the elders, where the elders of the churches are responsible for the handling of the word of God, teaching and preaching, and that deacon office gets that title and takes care of the service aspects of the church. So that's where we're at now. The the church has had a problem, maybe its first real internal problem with these women. The church has dealt with the problem. And now, lastly, in verse 7, the Great Commission is able to carry on. Verse 7 says that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And again, I said, wow, many of the priests, that would have been... Uh, challenging, right, to be a priest in Jerusalem and to become a Christian and profess Christ and all the repercussions of that. I mean, we, a lot of people here even have had to think about the challenge of making a decision that's going to cost you your livelihood, cost you your job. Uh, you don't know what you're going to do at that point. And that's definitely what would have happened with most of these guys if they were outwardly, uh, which I'm assuming at this point they were, they're probably getting baptized, they were becoming Christians that could have cost them their, their place in the synagogue. That's probably where they made their money. That's how they made their money. And so that was no small thing for these, um, these priests to becoming Christians. But the text says, again, that the disciples are multiplying greatly. And I just end with kind of the application of what is the obvious that we know from experience and that we see here even in this early church with apostles, with the Spirit of God flowing like it was, that as the disciples multiply, as these seats fill up, problems also will multiply. That's, that's going to happen, and that's not outside of God's will. Uh, as you add redeemed sinners, you add problems. And so... I think most of us, a lot of us here probably love these, these blessings, these kind of unique blessings that we share as a small church, right? Just the, the small church feel, kind of the laid back atmosphere. We know everybody, everybody knows us, and, you know, we're already comfortable. We've already worked through. We kind of know each other. We work with each other, and, and, and it's all fine. But as the church grows, um, those unique aspects might change. And we might have a whole lot of other issues that we haven't had to deal with before, and a lot of people kind of buck against that. But I think from this text, um, I think it would be kind of selfish for us to in any way intentionally try to remain small or anything like that um, just so that we can enjoy these blessings. I think we need to be prepared, welcome these problems that come because they will come. And I would say that our motivation should be for all of those people all of these countless families, these countless amount of children who don't have the blessings that we have to be, to, to be washed in the word as we are and to have the, the fellowship that we have. There's many, many people who don't have anything like what we have, right? The, the people come in, they visit, they tell you about how these other churches are, and you just think, well, that's, 
that's sad. Uh, we're blessed. You know, you think that. And I also think, man, there's, that means there's thousands of people in this area who are just stuck in, in churches that are getting off, that aren't being faithful. And here we are just week after week, you know, just in the Word of God. So, so we need to share the blessings that we have and, and be willing to kind of fight through some of the problems that that's going to bring. But for the good of these folks who, I mean, we've, who've been under good teaching, I mean, we, we are already established in the faith. We know the truth. We've been blessed by it. Um, I think it's a sacrifice that, that we need to make for, for the good of those who haven't had these things. We need to be willing to share those things with others. So welcome any guests. Um, we need to get back to evangelism. We need to be get, getting back to um, calling people in to the church of God. And hopefully the church will grow through those means. Which It's one thing for somebody to go from, from a church that used to be solid who's getting off and they come to us and they're like, okay, this, this is better, right? It's, it's a whole different thing to be bringing in converts who are very unsanctified and don't know their left from their right and the problems that will come with that. But likewise, we need to be willing um, to deal with that as well. And so may the Lord help us. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do pray this blessing that we've enjoyed, Lord, that we so often take for granted the the fellowship in the Word, Lord, the unity that we share in doctrine and understanding of You and Your Gospel, Lord. And there's so many, there's countless numbers, Lord, You know, who, who don't have this blessing, Lord. We pray that we would be given the grace to share this blessing with others, Lord. We pray You'll bring them in, Lord. Work out all of these problems. Help give us grace. Give Tafik grace to discern, grace to work through all these things, Lord, as he has and has proven faithful to do that. Um, Have mercy on your church, Lord. Bless this city, we pray, through us. In Jesus' name, amen.